0: Come to just our fourth study in Colossians, and I have entitled tonight's study Christian Maturity. Christian Maturity. Let's read Colossians chapter 1, and we'll read just verses 9 through 14. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Paul writes for this reason Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God And brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. May God have a blessing to his word and open our our hearts to, to receive that word tonight. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful scriptures. Continue, we pray, to help us as we endeavour to understand just a little more of what the Apostle Paul was endeavouring to say to the Colossian church, but also what the Spirit is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying to this church. We thank you, Lord, for the relevance, the pertinence of the Word of God. In so many ways, it is Old, these are ancient scriptures, but boy oh boy, they are ever new. For they each and every day minister into our hearts and lives. These are not just black ink on white pages. These are the words of God. So take your word tonight, we pray, and speak into our hearts and lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to take these verses 9 through 14 kind of backwards, if I may, and begin to look at verses 12 through 14 first, thinking about God's rescue plan, and then we look at verses 9 through 11 and think about going the distance, thinking about Christian maturity. So God's rescue plan. In verses 12 through 14 of Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, who had already written in verse 6, echoing something of the sentiment of the book of Genesis, now writes with a tone that is reminiscent of the book of Exodus, where remember God was addressing the Israelites whom he had brought out of Bondage in Egypt. Here we have phrases that are simply loaded with what I call Old Testament motif. Paul reminds the Colossians that they have been rescued. I love that dynamic, don't you? They have been rescued from the power, sorry, from the dominion of darkness, verse 13. Dominion of darkness. In other words, from the authority or the power of darkness. Darkness, remember, was one of the great plagues of Egypt. And, of course, when God brought his people, Israel, out of Egypt, he rescued them from the darkness of slavery. God has brought us in Christ out of darkness, out of the dominion, the authority, the power of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom. Definite article there. Not just a kingdom, the kingdom. To be more precise, in verse 14, Paul says, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. How wonderful. What a rescue that has been for the Colossian Christians. what a rescue. It has been for us to be brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is using Old Testament phraseology here to describe what happens when a person becomes a Christian. Perhaps this shouldn't surprise us. Paul speaks this way, writes this way, because Paul, remember, was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law, and subsequently, therefore, he was steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so as he endeavoured to, to explain the wonders of the Christian conversion to faith, he was using terminology, phraseology, that he was familiar with. A great transfer had occurred it seems. A great act of salvation had taken place and Paul uses language that he is familiar with. He uses a kind of vernacular if you like to speak about God's salvation of his own. This salvation maintains Paul can be likened to a divine rescue. A supernatural deliverance A little like God's rescue of Israel from Egypt. When it comes to communicating the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, we often hypothesize, do we not, over language and methods, over translations and interpretations. However, I believe Paul teaches us here and elsewhere, actually in his catalogue of epistles, that it's perfectly normal and indeed entirely preferable to use what comes natural to us. To use a kind of personal vernacular whenever we speak about what God has done in our lives. Whenever we speak about what God can do, wants to do in the lives of others just because someone is not expressing or communicating their faith the way that we do or the way that we prefer does not mean that they're wrong doesn't mean that we should go to great lengths to ensure that they learn some good old fashioned church language good old fashioned what's the expression we used to hear speak. People should be allowed to express what Jesus has done for them the way they want to express it, the way it comes natural. Because that's what Paul's doing here. It might not necessarily be in language that we can fully, uh, fully understand, but that's what he's doing because it's language he understands. The Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament motif of being rescued by God. To speak about the salvation of the saint, it is wonderful. Him, amazing grace. John Newton used two metaphors, did he not, to speak of the same. One metaphor he used was of a missing, a lost person being found. Another metaphor he used was of a blind person receiving the sight. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The saviour, wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. You see, he's just using language in a hymn that he understood. That he comprehended. As he spoke about what God had done. John Wesley preferred the idea of being loose from binding chains. Did he not? Uh, My my soul was loose from the chains that set me free. (coughs) I once heard the testimony of a young man from Liverpool who used this expression in his testimony and Jesus came to me and blew my socks right off (laughs) now many in the congregation frowned and I was probably one of them (laughs) and the spirit says well hey he's just expressing what he knows (laughs) Jesus has saved him and for him it's like the Lord blowing his socks right off doesn't make it wrong. It's his vernacular. So that's what Paul is doing. In in these amazing verses. He's using familiar. Language. And for him it's, it's Old Testament phraseology. Old Testament motifs. All expressing. The wonders of a soul set free. All expressing. What it means. To be a life transformed by Jesus. And expressing it. All of these people in their own inimitable way, I suppose, and each of them entirely appropriate. The gospel, my friends, offers us forgiveness. Paul says so, does he not? At the end of verse 14 there, he speaks about redemption, the forgiveness. I don't have to work off my bad karma praise the Lord I don't have to balance my disharmonious chakras praise God I don't have to atone for my many sins all I need to do tonight is trust in Jesus isn't that good in trusting Jesus I am set free says the apostle Paul from the grip of darkness because Paul says, verse 13, that I am brought under the rule and management of a new authority. That authority is the kingdom of Jesus. We were joking, some of us, yesterday at the meat for lunch, that, uh, Doug Adam, he is a man under authority. Clearly I was. I was, I was, I was, Commanded this way and that, I was, as I was waiting on the, the precious folk for, the, for their meal. And, and, and that we are, aren't we, in Christ? Those under new management, so to speak. Those under a new authority set free from the law of sin and death. Paul says that's the dominion of darkness. And brought into a personal relationship with Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus. But how does this transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light come about? Well, verse 12 tells us, doesn't it? This transfer, if we're in Christ tonight, I'm looking around lovingly, and I believe we all are. This transfer from the kingdom of darkness, the dominion, the power, the authority of darkness, into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, how does it come about? Verse 12 says, Paul says, God has qualified us. Isn't that an interesting expression? He, God, has qualified us. That got me thinking. Back in the 1990s, I was one of the guinea pigs on a new degree course being established at the University College of Chester in conjunction with Liverpool University. Consequently, I had to sit an exam on the philosophy of religion. An exam that nobody had sat before. I sat there for three hours, most of the time praying. (laughs) I had prepared for the examination, I thought, but it seemed that the exam paper bore little or no resemblance to what I had read. <laughs> I came out, my head was whizzing. I was sure that I'd failed. I was encouraged, however, when I spoke with my fellow students, fellow pupils, because they were all saying the same. We all expected to fail. It turned out that that exam had been set at a standard That only a professor of philosophy at Oxford or Cambridge could actually have coped with. So the examiners got together and they must have decided that my name on the paper alone was worth 30%. And amazingly, amazingly, they qualified the lot of us. We all passed. It was a miracle. Sheer grace. It bore no relationship to my performance, my deserts at all. But I passed. Likewise, listen, God qualifies us by His grace. He qualifies us by His grace. To put it another way, Christ has taken. The exam paper for you and for me. It may not have been the philosophy of religion, please God, it wasn't, but Christ took the exam paper for you and for me. But He takes the exam paper, this is amazing, isn't it? But He inserts our name at the top of the exam paper. He qualifies us. Isn't that amazing? You see, if we take the exam paper for, for the kingdom of light, we'll fail. But Jesus has took the exam paper. He's sat at that desk for us, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. He's took the exam paper, and he's written, Doug Atherton, at the top of the exam paper, and thus he qualifies me. Isn't that amazing? He qualifies me. For his kingdom. Paul makes it clear. That if I am not a Christian. Then according to the scriptures. I am under the power and sway. Of darkness. That's quite sobering. Isn't it? Those outside these doors tonight. Who unlike you and I. Are not in Christ. Not in Christ's kingdom. Because we're qualified. By what Christ has done. They are under the power and sway of spiritual darkness. People in the grip of darkness sometimes illustrate that bondage by incredibly cruel lifestyles or outlandish sins of the flesh. Primarily, however, the grip of darkness is in itself a heart of rebellion. A heart that thinks to itself, I don't need Christ. I can do it my way. I can be independent of God. Under the power of darkness, we can do nothing to save ourselves. But thank God tonight, the gospel, my friends, is not a pull yourself up by your own bootlaces kind of message. The gospel tonight is good news because Jesus has qualified us. He's not looking to us and saying, Atherton, where are your qualifications? Where is your certification? Where is your authority to come into my kingdom? He says, Douglas, he says, listen, I've sat the examination for you. You're qualified. All because I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Outside of Christ, our danger is so great Our plight is so terrible it is only almighty God who can mount this rescue mission. And in Jesus' son qualify us. But that dear friends is exactly what God has done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. That rescue mission Affected through the cross brings us redemption. Verse 14, Paul speaks about redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love that word redemption, don't you? I mean, arguably it's not a word used in everyday life today. You don't go through the streets and hear people speak about being redeemed. But it is one of the Apostle Paul's favourite words, it seems to me. Redemption is a word that he uses often in the epistles. It is to say that we are redeemed, we are brought back out of slavery. We are thus set free. And so Paul maintains we are forgiven. Redeemed, brought back. With the price, of course, you, when you purchase something, it costs. What did it cost, Jesus? To buy us back from darkness. 30 pieces of silver? Not at all. Cost him his life. To buy us back. Cost him his precious shed blood to redeem us from the power of sin and death. To redeem us from the dominion and authority of darkness. It cost him his life. The Amen. divine son of God. Fully God and yet fully man. Amen. Laid down his life to redeem Doug Hallelujah. C.S. Lewis, the well-known Oxford Don. Who of course later in life became a Cambridge professor. Amen. Was once... On a kind of any questions type of program. And he was asked this question. Professor Lewis. What can Jesus Christ give me. That no one else can give me. And professor I want your answer. In just one word. And without hesitation. C.S. Lewis looked up and said. Simply. Forgiveness. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful Amen. to be forgiven? <laughs> Isn't it amazing to have a conscience that is clear before God and man? <laughs> and though others might point the finger and accuse, how wonderful it is tonight that because of Jesus, God doesn't look upon us and point the finger and accuse. One of my favourite passages of Scripture is that scripture when you remember that lady, girl caught in the act of adultery. Consequently, perhaps even naked. Was brought before Jesus. Her accuser says she was caught in the act of adultery. The Lord of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? Jesus said, he who has no sin cast the first storm. One by one, the oldest first and then the youngest, they all disappeared. No one dared to cast a storm in judgment of the lady caught in adultery because they knew they were in sin. The amazing thing in that story is there was one person there who was without sin. Who could legitimately have cast the storm. And that was Jesus. But what did he do? Well, he just simply said to, my, to, the, he said to the, my daughter, he said, What are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That's what Jesus does tonight. He looks upon Dugatham tonight. He is the only one who rightly can cast a storm in my direction. I'm, condemn me to hell worthy I, though I am of hell he looks upon me because of his precious shed blood because of my faltering faith and he says I love you I died for you I forgive you God said no more this is the wonder of our redemption this is how wonderful this experience of forgiveness is This is what it means, my friends, to be rescued by God. (coughs) Hallelujah. And rescued that we might go the distance. The great transfer was just the start of the Christian life for these Colossians. Paul wants them to press on towards maturity. He says in verse 9, Praying for them in, in verse nine, praise to God that God would fill them with the knowledge of His will through so all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful prayer. What vexes many Christians these days, it seems to me, from experiences, they find it difficult to discern the will of God. Here Paul, maybe because of his natural pastoral heart, here he prays for these Christians that God would fill them with the knowledge of God's will. Through all spiritual wisdom and understanding and the purpose for such filling. Verses 10 and 11, he says that they may live a life worthy of the Lord. And may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. My friends, somewhat selfishly, we are desiring the will of God for, for our sakes. No, 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 Paul says, I pray that you might know the will of God for God's sake. That's an interesting perspective, isn't it? I wonder, perhaps that's why Christians praying are praying incorrectly. Praying selfishly. God, I want to know your will for me. (laughs) That I might be fulfilled. That I might be happy. But Paul says, no, no. I pray that you will know the knowledge of God's will that you therefore might live a life worthy of the Lord. Wow, that puts a spin on it, doesn't it? We pray for the will of God, not for our sake, not for our fulfillment, not for our happiness, but for God's glory. We're reminded it's all about Him. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His kingdom. It's all about His glory. It's that I might please Him in every way, bearing fruit. I love that. Bearing fruit in every good work. strengthening in all power. According to his glorious might. Brethren, as we grow in the grace of God the Father. As we mature in the faith of Christ the Son. By the indwelling Holy Spirit. Are we to be happy, peaceful, contented? Well, not in the first instance. Rather, first and foremost. We are to have great endurance and patience. Yes, as a byproduct, we are happy in Christ. More than that, joyful. As a byproduct, we know the peace of God that transcends understanding. As a byproduct, we know a sense of contentment within the inner man, don't we? But first and foremost, we know the will of God and we grow in the grace of God that we might have great endurance and patience. Verse 11. Are we then stoical? Are we then light, light, uh, light, li- light-lipped and determined and miserable? No, hardly. In a, note the addition there, joyfully, in verse 11, joyfully. Paul prays that these Christians will go the distance of faith. <laughs> and in so doing that they will know great endurance and great patience. But endurance and patience, it's, often we think, those to be negative terms. Oh, I'm enduring my Christian walk. <gasps> oh, I'm being patient before the Lord. No, says Paul. Joyfully. Joyfully. <coughs> we all know, oh, dear Christian brethren, <coughs> don't we, who, for whatever reason, make it difficult for us to believe in a God of love. <laughs> Because when you talk about the, the walk with the Lord, oh, the Lord is worthy. And this long pilgrimage I'm enduring with patience and sorrow. And you think, oh my goodness me, is this, is what, is this what the Lord's done and saved you? Yes, endurance and, and patience, but joyfully, joyfully, the heart of spiritual maturity, that we walk this walk of faith, that we run this wonderful race of, of spiritual life, that we are pilgrims in Christ Jesus, joyfully, with great endurance and patience. Understanding the will and the purpose of God, not so that we can be happy and and contented first and foremost, but that he is glorified. Because of who we are and because of what we do in Jesus. Paul prays, they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And so filled, will endure with patience and with joy in the heart. This, for me, from the Apostle Paul's perspective, is going the distance, is spiritual maturity. You may know the film Saving Private Ryan. Quite a shocking film it recounts a story from the Second World War post D-Day when incredible American resources were used to rescue just one American soldier Private Ryan these resources were deployed because all of Private Ryan's brothers had been killed in action And the commander back home in the States wanted to at least send one son home to a grieving mother. Many men lost their lives to save this one man, Private Ryan. And in a moving scene towards the end of the film, the dying captain of the rescue platoon, played by Tom Hanks, remember, says to Ryan, I quote, Earn this. Earn what has been done for you. In the final scene of the film, we see Private Ryan as an old man. He's visiting the graves of some of those who had given their lives for him. As he visits those graves, he asks himself this pointed question. Was I good enough? Was I good enough for all that has been done for me? Hmm. My dear friends, payday one day we will give an account. Sobering, but we will. We'll give an account to our Lord for the deeds done in the body what we had done will be tried as by fire. My prayer is that whilst we will never be good enough to save ourselves because we can only be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, my prayer is that out of a heart of sheer thanksgiving and gratitude, we will have, if you like, endeavored to repay the wonders of Calvary. By yielding our all, so payday one day we will put hand on heart and say, "Jesus, I hope I was good enough. I hope I, I I walked the walk of faith well enough. I hope I I ran the race of life in that determined spirit of endurance and patience." In such a way that it brought you glory. Payday one day. I like the Apostle Paul. As he anticipated that leaving the scene of time. In the last letter that he ever wrote. The second letter to young Timothy. Anticipating his promotion to glory. What did Paul say? It's amazing isn't it? This is his testimony. I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have Kept the faith. Big-headed, you think? Was he being big-headed? I don't think so. He was a man of complete humility. A man who was yielded to God throughout his Christian life. But a man who, out of great gratitude, had sought to run the Christian race. Abandoned the purposes of God. And here, anticipating on his deathbed so to speak, giving his account, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of glory. Oh God, my prayer for me, as it is I'm sure your prayer for you, is that we, reflecting on our deathbeds, given the opportunity to reflect, as we stand before the throne of God, giving account, we will, out of sheer gratitude, be able to say, (laughs) I did what I could, when I could, with all that I was, for God's glory. The hymn writer put it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul. My life, my all. How much, how much does, does, does Jesus deserve of me? My soul, my life, my all. Why? Because He's rescued me. Hallelujah. He's rescued me from the dominion, the power, the authority of darkness. And in so doing, he has redeemed me from the pit. From slavery to Satan. And forgiven me. That I might walk in unison life. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul. My life. My all. My friends, that is what is entailed in pleasing him. Paul writes here, verse 10, that in every way, in every good work, notice he uses that double-barreled expression, that in every way, in every good work, we will glorify God. Father, we thank you for these searching scriptures, wonderful scriptures. Oh, Lord. I want to thank you tonight. That you have redeemed me. I want to thank you tonight that you have, as it were, paid the price for me. You have qualified me. You've took that examination paper on my behalf. I would fail it. But Jesus, Hallelujah! you put your name on the top. Of the paper you completed. On Dugadin's behalf. And I am qualified for the kingdom of light. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh what a salvation this is. And so Father once again given the opportunity. I'm grateful for it. Here I am Lord wholly available as for me. I will serve the Lord. Amen. Amen. Next week we will move on into uh, the final verses of of Colossians 1. Verses 50 onwards, certainly, looking at Christ's authority. Christ's authority.